So let us rise as we come first to hear the word of God read. Acts chapter 9, verse 20 through 30. Acts 9, verse 20 through 30, these are the words of God. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose? so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this, Jesus, is the Christ. Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. And they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and let him down through the wall in a large basket. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. And did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. And he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road. And that he had spoken to him. And how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem coming in and going out. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists. But they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. Thus ends this reading of God's inspired and inerrant word. We rejoice now to worship him in the hearing of it preached. Please be seated. One of the things that we saw at the beginning of the book of Acts, when he was introducing it as the second volume, and he said, in my former volume, I told you, or Theophilus, and says, he describes what he had done in uh, the Gospel of Luke, uh, as describing all that Jesus had begun to do and to teach. And the implication, of course, was that the book of Acts is uh, those things that Jesus continues to do and to teach. Uh, So that uh, if you have one of those Bibles that says the Acts of the Apostles um, uh, uh, at the tops of the pages as you go through the book of Acts, uh, you could well, at least uh, in your mind, uh, look at the word apostles and maybe uh, give it a thin strike through and know that it really says the continuing acts on earth of the risen Lord Jesus Christ from heaven. Uh, that is what's going on in the book of Acts. And that is this apostle, the uh, apostle Paul, 
who's still here, is being referred to using uh, his uh, Aramaic or Jewish or Hebrew name, uh, Saul. Uh, that is his own interpretation uh, of these events when he looks back on them. Uh, he's going to repeat the account of his uh, conversion, especially uh, in chapter 22 and chapter 26. Uh, but then in 2 Corinthians 11, when he begins discussing his own weakness uh, as an apostle uh, and the fact that it, as an apostle, what he does and what he says come by the power of Jesus and the speaking of Jesus, he refers to this incident in Damascus as an example of how he's nothing. He's a, a weak guy who has to escape out of windows and be let down in baskets. It's Jesus, his power and his word uh, that does everything. Uh, and then when he is reminding the Galatians that man doesn't get to give his own spin on the gospel. Uh, and so uh, when he is writing to the Galatians and especially in chapters one and two, but it's really throughout that entire letter. Uh, he does not speak the way that the Bible scholars do at the seminaries and talk about the Petrine gospel and the Pauline gospel and the Johannine gospel. Uh, in fact, uh, that kind of speaking to the Apostle Paul is almost literally anathema, uh, that it must be the same gospel. Uh, and there's not one or another's take on it. Well, one of the things that he does as he's making that case in Galatians 1 and 2 is he refers back to this period in his life and he talks about how the Lord Jesus personally appeared to him and converted him and how the Lord Jesus personally trained him in his ministry and that when the Lord Jesus had done that, only 14 years later, and maybe that's 14 plus the three that we'll hear about shortly, so perhaps 17 years uh, later, uh, he goes back up and he compares notes with the apostles at that time. Uh, he does after the three years, but then again at the end of the 17 uh, and concludes that yes, they got the gospel from the Lord Jesus and Paul got the gospel from the Lord Jesus, and the way they knew was not by each one of them having claimed it, but by them comparing notes and concluding it's exactly the same gospel. And so the apostles' own recollection of the portion of Acts that is before us uh, this morning and afternoon, uh, Lord willing, is that this was the time that Jesus began using him in the ministry. This was the time that Jesus began using the last apostle. The focus is on what Jesus is doing. Uh, and that, of course, has been the point throughout uh, the book of Acts so far. Uh, and I hope that as we have been working slowly through it by God's help, uh, that the Holy Spirit has been opening our eyes anew to see that even more than we ever had before. And we'll see that again, uh, Lord willing, Lord uh, sparing us to one another until uh, we get to the next passage, uh, perhaps next Lord's Day, uh, and seeing that the particular events 
that the Spirit carries Luke along to select when he switches over to Peter are events that make you say, oh, it's the Lord Jesus doing this. And that when Peter speaks to Aeneas in the next passage, he actually tells him, it's the Lord Jesus doing this. Uh, And then in the passage after that, when Peter uh, is to go and uh, preach to and baptize Cornelius' household, the Lord Jesus prepares him by telling both of them that he is the one who is doing this. Uh, And when it comes time uh, for baptism, which displays that it is the Lord Jesus who does it, they do the same thing. Uh, Jesus goes first. He pours the spirit who falls. And Peter very nervously says, can we withhold the water when it's, and this is the implication, the Lord Jesus who is doing this. And so the emphasis in this entire uh, book and uh, particularly in this section that we are in uh, now is that it is the Lord Jesus who is now using this last and unique apostle. Uh, And so we pay attention to what the ministry looks like. Uh, There is, I think, in the churches, a, a sense and understanding that what we need is apostolic ministry. And that's true. But that's about as far as it goes well for many. Because when they say that, There are many who don't mean we need only that ministry that the Lord Jesus does from heaven. And so we need to do only that ministry that the Lord Jesus describes in the Bible. And so we need to do only that ministry uh, that uh, the Lord Jesus uh, wants us. uh, We need to hear and speak only that message that the Lord Jesus has given us. Usually that's not what people mean when, at least in our day and age, uh, when you hear, we need apostolic ministry. They usually mean things like, we need to babble like fools in a way that the apostles never actually did in the Bible. And we need to have the healings of paralytics, uh, but never the restoration of amputated arms or the resurrections of Uh, of dead people, that's a little uh, too difficult. Uh, And we need these ecstatic uh, uh, experiences. Well, there is going to be the healing of a paralytic and a resurrection uh, in next week's passage. Uh, But what we find uh, in Jesus' use of the Apostle Paul in the beginning now of his apostolic ministry here are the things that we actually really need the most. We need zeal among the servants of Christ and boldness not to back down from the offensive bits or to allow shame over what we have been to keep us from proclaiming who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. We need patience and persistence 
in difficult ministry. And we need the development of skill and training with the humility to say, I need more education and I need more strength. We need perseverance in the face of persecution. We need this sort of apostolic ministry, the one that Jesus describes to us in our passage. And so we'll hear those things, uh, we hope, by God's help. Uh, In the first place, uh, zeal and boldness. Uh, Yes, those of you who are um, cleverly observing can see that it's really six, um, uh, six points. But if you put two each on uh, under three headings, it looks like three. And then if the six point has five subheadings, uh, then it's really ten. But let us not bother ourselves with that. We'll organize it under the three. Uh, in the first place, zeal and boldness. Verse 20, immediately he preached the Christ. He did not say, I've been converted now. I've been called now. I will wait for an opportune time to begin my ministry. Uh, It is uh, daunting, especially if you have a reputation uh, as he does here. The first response that you see is, isn't this the guy who came to drag off anybody who uh, who believes in this name or proclaims uh, this name, uh, there is never an opportune time to do something good when you are waiting for it. If you wait for that perfect moment to do it, it will never come, and you will never do it. Uh, in fact, it is only very rarely that we come into a season or come into a moment or come into a relationship where the Lord gives us the clarity or the foresight to see uh, that this is an opportune time. And as many of you have discovered in your lives, perhaps not with respect to ministry, but with other things, there have been those that you thought were going to be opportune times uh, that uh, it did not turn out the way that you have ex- had expected Uh, I myself had a ministry that is still desperately needed and uh, for which I pray that the Lord would send someone to do. Uh, But it was not the opportune time uh, that I thought. Uh, And and bless God's name for his wisdom. But many of you will also be able uh, to affirm that many things that we thought were the most inopportune times and circumstances turned out to be the ones in which the Lord himself was pleased to work most powerfully and most clearly. And as the apostle looks back on this period in 2 Corinthians 11 going into uh, 2 Corinthians 12, he highlights that. The Lord saying, my strength is made perfect in weakness. Uh, And so it was even here in Damascus, being let out a window and down in a basket, uh, that the apostle was getting those first lessons uh, in the uh, 
the fact that God's grace is sufficient uh, and that would mature in his boasting when he is weak, for then it is strong, he is strong. Zeal, he immediately preached Christ. He didn't wait for a more opportune time. And that zeal is matched with boldness. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. He goes to the place where he has access. He actually has access by letter. And you can almost see in um, in the passage as they are um, uh, as they are amazed and saying in verse 21, is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? They know, it seems, the very text of the letters that he brought in hand to have access into the synagogues, to have privilege of the floor. And so he comes to the synagogue leader, or the synagogue ruler, and he hands him his papers. Oh, it comes from the chief priest. This is very official, very impressive. And uh, hands him back his papers. And uh, and Saul, the great Pharisee, that's the star pupil of Gamaliel from Jerusalem, stands up in front of the synagogues and he starts to preach. And what does he say? He says, the Christ is not the son of Moses the son of Aaron, or the son of David. The Christ is the son of God. God became a man to be the prophet that Moses had said would come and supersede him. God became a man, son of David according to the flesh, but declared the son of God with power according to the spirit by the resurrection of the dead. God is the Christ. So immediately he preached the Christ where? In the, uh, in the least receptive place in the synagogues with the most offensive but most crucial part of the message, verse 20, that he is the son of God. He did not back down from the most offensive bit. He didn't get on the talk show and get a question about homosexuality or abortion put to him and hem and haw about how well Christians have all of their sins too. And um, there are a lot of people who find themselves in difficult situations. No. He went straight for the most offensive thing. If it was a question on homosexuality, he'd say, it is an abomination. And he would say, as he did in chapter 1 of Romans, which we heard preached a few weeks ago in the midweek meeting, that particular lust is called a vile passion and is against nature as a demonstration that all sinners are under the wrath of God against all of their unrighteousness and ungodliness. But in the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation, righteousness from God is revealed 
Even for such sinners as that, through faith in Jesus Christ. You hear the difference? Not backing off of the most offensive bit, but going straight for it. Because it is there that God the Son became a man to bear God's wrath in the place of sinners so that they might have God's righteousness instead of their guilt. It's there in the most offensive bit that the gospel is most clearly heard. And so he doesn't come in and, uh, and start uh, preaching the great continuity between what the Jews thought the Old Testament said and what the gospel is. He comes and he goes straight for the jugular and he says, your whole Old Testament taught you and you should have been able to see that it was God the Son who would come and atone for sinners. The Christ is the Son of God. He goes for the most offensive bit because that's the clearest part of the gospel. Boldness. All who heard were amazed. And they say, is this not he who? Well, they knew who he had been and he knew who he had been. And there's a great temptation among preachers and cousins and sons or daughters or brothers or sisters that we have been in a, a particular way. I'm grateful this wasn't my first call. This is the third um, congregation in which I have um, functioned as preacher and pastor. Grateful to have had uh, an experience in which uh, in my previous call as a church planter uh, and I kind of tried to acclimate a little bit. I didn't uh, didn't come in throwing all my reformed elbows with all of my right-angled, black-and-white, wonderful, glorious, reformed, biblical theology, uh, and I found it difficult to transition uh, as, uh, as they had... Uh, and we were all believers, and we were all called reformed Presbyterians. But just what I had been made it difficult, and I needed grace from God to grow in the boldness to be among them opposite what they thought I had been. And some of us have not been as clear with our mom or dad or uh, our siblings or our childhood friends about the difference now. And some of us even within the congregation as the Lord awakens us and, uh, and uh, brings us more into conformity with the mind of Christ as the Spirit uh, applies Him to us using the, the Scriptures. We, we kind of try to, to function in this continuity of inertia uh, and uh, lack of boldness keeps us from amazing those who have the book on us. They had the book on Saul. They knew what he was like. But what he was suddenly like because of the difference of what he knew about Jesus was very different. There wasn't inertia. There wasn't that gradual melding of one into the other. So the first thing that the apostle remembers that Luke, by the Spirit, preaches to us 
about that time when Jesus began using the last apostle was his zeal and his boldness. But how many take the idea of zeal and boldness and use it to excuse lack of patience and lack of skill? That is not what the Lord does with the Apostle Paul here. The next thing uh, that we see, and this is especially in verse 22, and we're going to need help from Galatians for some timeline things here. Um, The next thing that we see is patience and skill. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this, the Son of God, is the Christ. I know it says Jesus there in the passage. If you have one of those copies of the New King James that puts the supplied words in uh, italics, you'll see that Jesus is italics because the name Jesus is not in the text. Uh, And the, the continuity from verse 20 into verse 22 really means that this, the Son of God, is the Christ. So in the first part, we have patience, but Saul increased all the more in strength. And in the second part, we have skill, and he confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus. So at first, he's just preaching, and there's some uh, pushback uh, already, and he increases all the more in strength, and that's the patience part. Uh, But as he's increasing in strength, He's now not just preaching that the Christ is the Son of God, but now he is proving that the Son of God is the Christ. There's a development in in skill, in ability here. Paul has all of this Old Testament knowledge, all of this Bible knowledge, and much of it is very good, but he's, he's just at the beginning of understanding what it means that the scriptures are those that speak of Jesus. When Jesus is talking to Pharisees, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that speak of me. And it is the, uh, there is an opening of eyes that we need from Christ by the spirit uh, to walk us through all the scriptures, but beginning at Moses, showing us how they teach us about Christ. They proclaim Christ to us from the beginning to the end, from Genesis to Malachi. Yes, from Genesis to Revelation, but at this point, the scriptures they have are Genesis uh, Genesis to Malachi. And so there was a learning curve for him. And the apostle, actually, there's a break that he takes here uh, that is almost certainly under this uh phrase at the beginning of verse 22, but Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Now, after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him and their plot became known to Saul and they watched the gates day and night. You get the feeling as you read this incorrectly. If you get this feeling, you're getting it incorrectly, that this all happens very quickly. Uh, although the word many days should give you a clue. Uh, One of the helpful things, though, is that uh, Scripture interpreting Scripture, God being his own best interpreter, we have another account of this in Galatians chapter 1. 
And the apostle, I'll begin reading in verse 15, although it's verse 17 that we're really uh, going to use um, for understanding verse 22 of our passage. But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace. Isn't that marvelous that the chief of sinners, the self-righteous Pharisee, the murderer of the early church was called from his mother's womb that God hadn't wasted a day in Saul's life even though Saul had wasted decades of Saul's life. But God, when, sorry, I won't preach all of Galatians 1. It's just some things you have to point out. But when it pleased God who separated from me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, now we're up into Acts chapter 9, right? To reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the nations, the Gentiles, just say nations wherever you see Gentiles. That's what the word is. That I may preach him among the nations. So he's remembering back and he's remembering that, that first moment of calling, that first moment of grace, that entering into the ministry. And what was he preaching? He was preaching God the Son. I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. That actually does end up happening by the end of our passage. But here we are at the end of verse 17. But I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. You, you don't get that from, from our passage, right? You have to understand that somewhere in uh, and where we are in, from between uh, between uh, verse uh, 20 and verse 23, there's a trip to Arabia. And it's almost certainly here when we have but Saul increased all the more in strength. Because in, in Galatians 1.17, he understands his need to confer with someone. He needed help organizing uh, his message, working on his proclamation. And when he's talking about that in Galatians 1.17, he's saying, I didn't even go up to the apostles for that help. I went into Arabia. Now, what you need to know is that uh, when he says Arabia, he doesn't mean what we say when we say Arabia. Uh, usually when we say Arabia, we mean kind of like the peninsula, right? Saudi Arabia and uh, the other uh, ultra totalitarian Islamic states that make up that peninsula. And um, you have reformed brothers and sisters in those nations, by the way. Uh, something for, for another time. Uh, but at this time, Arabia um, uh, was a region uh, that the, in the Roman Empire that included the Transjordan, the across the Jordan uh, area, so that uh, if you're thinking, um, yeah, kind of Israel and Damascus, uh, and you got the Jordan River coming up uh, from the Dead Sea, uh, this eastern region, all the way up as far as uh, Israel goes, down, and then of course much of what they called Arabia, we actually do call Arabia now, uh, but the old Nabataean Empire. Basically, what Paul what Paul or uh, Saul is doing here is he starts preaching that Jesus is the Christ. He's not yet 
able to confound and prove the way young Stephen had done in his home church back in Jerusalem. We'll think about that uh, in a little bit. And so he crosses over the Jordan and he goes into the desert. And the Lord Jesus, who had appeared to him on the road, does as he had promised to him. He gives him instruction. He gives him training. And so Saul has patience. He continues to increase in strength. He went to, as it were, theological seminary. Uh, and if Jesus is your professor, uh, then you don't need any other ones. And you don't need any other um, uh, classmates. He did not confer with flesh and blood, he says in Galatians 1. What he means is he conferred with the Son of God whom he was preaching. Very interesting that he refers to Jesus not according to his human nature now, but according to his divine nature in Galatians 1.17. And that ultimately is what you need at seminary. Whoever the professor is, he better be opening the scripture to you under the authority of Christ by the help of God the Holy Spirit. That's what you need in the preaching, isn't it? That's why you, uh, I hope, will keep coming back. Because it is Christ through his servant who opens up his words that have been inscripturated on the page and attends it by his spirit and makes to take root in your heart what he proclaims. That's what Paul was saying to the Galatians, uh, in Galatians 1 and 2, and that's what he was strengthened by, verse 22 of our passage. But Saul increased all the more in strength. You see, he needed physical food in verse 19. There's a, there's a connection between that verse and this one in the local uh, context, literary context in Acts. So when he had received food, he was strengthened, verse 19. Then verse 22, but Saul increased all the more in strength. And we are not to think that that means, oh, he kept on eating like it said in verse 19. No. He increased all the more in strength because he recognized that he needed help and the Lord Jesus was his help. Those who say or think or communicate some other way that zeal and boldness are demonstrated by refusing education and study and training and preparation, they're liars. The zeal and boldness of the apostle as Jesus began to use him was matched with training and education and preparation. And it was through those things as Jesus strengthened his apostle that he came to develop this skill to confound the Jews uh, who dwelt in Damascus. And of course, we've seen this before, but last time it was in Jerusalem and it was in the synagogue of the freedmen, that Hellenistic culture background church, which was Paul's home church since he's from Tarsus. And Stephen spoke with a wisdom and a spirit that was confounding them. 
So what does apostolic ministry look like? It looks like zeal and boldness. It looks like patience and skill. But it also looks like perseverance and persecution. Verse 23. Now after many days were passed. Then you say, um, well, how many is many? Uh, well, we know the answer because he tells us uh, in Galatians chapter 1. Uh, Galatians 1.18, uh, after three years. Let me go ahead and read that to you. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. Uh, but I saw no, none of the other apostles except James, uh, the Lord's brother, and so forth. And we'll come back um, in a minute. When it says after many days were passed, he's talking about three years. Three years of them saying, what is this guy doing? Isn't he supposed to be on the other side? Three years of them arguing with him uh, and, uh, and him having... Um, spent we don't know how long in Arabia and come back and now confounding them and proving them that the Son of God is the Christ. Uh, three years of their increasing in their hostility uh, towards him, uh, exasperating them and, uh, and having as the primary fruit of his ministry not only their exasperation but eventual murderousness towards him. That's some perseverance. It would be very difficult on any of us to minister to people who the primary fruit of our proving to them, the more we showed them that this really is what the Bible says about Jesus, the more they pushed back and the more not just hostile to the message they became, but even hostile to our person. So that at the end of three years now, the Jews have been murderous for long enough that not only are one or two of them willing to take matters into their own hands, but they are agreed to conspire to commit murder. It's not a moment of passion like at the end of Stephen's trial. There's perseverance in a hard place in this apostolic ministry. Not like all of those frauds that call themselves apostles and go to Africa and preach in a place their prosperity gospel and collect the local wealth. And as soon as uh, it starts to appear that they don't actually have anything to offer, they run and go somewhere else and do it again. No, in true apostolic ministry, there's perseverance with the gospel, even in the face of fruitlessness even in the face of hostility and persecution. This is what we need in our own hearts, in our own homes, in our pulpit, and in all the pulpits of Christ's church. Not just zeal and boldness, not just patience and skill, but perseverance, sticking to what the Lord has called us to, even when the fruit has been disappointing. And even if it includes the hostility of those around us. This is why, and we had this experience recently, you get on a church website and you read its self-description and the word winsome 
features prominently in the first line of every paragraph. It's not wrong to be winsome. The gospel is winsome. But there are not just some, but many who are not won by winsomeness. Don't think that the culture is going to like what you have to offer, necessarily. God may give it. And it should be likable to God and uh, and pan out at the judgment. You, know, uh, you don't put grouchy as the first line, the sentence, the featured word in the first line of every sentence either. But what we need and what was a mark of the beginning of Paul's apostolic ministry was perseverance in an unpopular ministry. Perseverance in a painful ministry. Perseverance in a frustrating ministry. Because it was perseverance in Christ's ministry. It belonged to Jesus. It wasn't up to Paul to do a different thing or to do it in a different way. And the one who was doing it through him had done everything for him and was worthy of that perseverance. Some of you need to hear that in your parenting. Perseverance. And persecution. They should tell you this in seminary. I think maybe I had one professor who really highlighted it. Paul told it to Timothy when Timothy went to Pauline Theological Seminary. 2 Timothy chapter 3, when he's explaining to him how things are in the church. And uh, no, the church has a whole lot of preachers in it that aren't like you are, Paul, like you. I have been, Timothy, and you must now be, says the Apostle Paul. He tells him, everyone who desires to live a godly life in, uh, in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Now you don't say, I'm going to go out and see how I get myself persecuted today because being persecuted is a hallmark of apostolic ministry. And so you go out and in your flesh and all of your unskilledness and lack of wisdom, seek to offend people with yourself instead of proclaiming Christ who is offensive to the flesh. You say, ha ha, I got persecuted. I must be godly. No, that's a converse error for those of you who are... Uh, who know logic. But isn't the contrapositive true? If godly, then persecuted. It doesn't mean if persecuted, then godly. But it does mean if not persecuted, not godly. The apostolic ministry will always have enemies. And so we see this persecution in multiple ways here, and we'll just run through them fairly quickly. The first is a deadly threat. The Jews plotted to kill him. Uh, They had had, um, given up arguing with him. Um, They plotted to kill him. It's a persistent threat. Uh, It says they watched the gates day and night, verse 24. So they plotted to kill him. Saul found out about it. At this point, it appears that Saul's public ministry stopped. We'll talk about that uh, in a moment. 
but they know one public place where they can get him, uh, so they watch the gates day and night. So it's a deadly threat. It's a persistent threat. The godly are not the only ones who have persistence and perseverance. Those of you who are in a fight with your flesh, you know how persistent your remaining sin is. It's an increasing threat. This is another one where uh, scripture interpreting scripture, it, it enhances uh, our knowledge of the passage. Second Corinthians chapter 11. If I must boast, I will boast. This is verse 30 in Second Corinthians 11. If I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my weakness. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying in Damascus, the governor under Aretas the king was guarding the city of the Damascenes, people are from Damascus, with a garrison desiring to arrest me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. Now, that opens up your understanding of verses 23 to 25 a little bit, doesn't it? Because if you're just reading the book of Acts, it sounds like there's a bunch of those, you know, irritable, hostile, murderous Jews, you know, kind of like the ones who later in Acts are going to, uh, either they kept their word and starved to death because they weren't able to, to get Paul. You remember the ones who take the, the vow not to eat or drink until they killed him? Uh, if you're just reading Acts, it, it sounds like it's just a few Jews, right? Uh, and you're like, well, why? Yeah, it's just a few Jews. Why the whole threw a window in a basket thing? Um, you know, one of the first Cenefelts that I can remember from my uh, my childhood Sunday school classes. But it's not just a couple of Jews, is it? There's a garrison of men who are being led by the local governor. You know, think um, Pilate in Jerusalem, but now it's uh, whoever his counterpart would have been in Damascus. But it's not just the the local governor is actually in in cahoots with the the. Uh, figurehead king Aretas in the region. Think Herod in Jerusalem, but Aretas is his counterpart in Damascus. Apparently proclaiming that God the Son has become the Christ and that he is Lord over all. And it's not Kaiser Kurios, it's Christos Kurios, not Caesar is Lord, but Christ is Lord, that upsets more than Jews, doesn't it? You're preaching the gospel plainly and clearly, you're going to upset more than the status quo people in the church. And the self-righteous don't need atonement, just a little bit more credit people in the church. You're preaching Christ well, you're going to upset everyone who isn't a Christian or isn't being brought to be one by the Spirit. So it's not just a deadly threat and a persistent threat. It's an increasing threat. And we should expect that for a faithful ministry, a zealous ministry, a bold ministry, a patient ministry, a skilled ministry, a persevering ministry, that it will be a persecuted ministry. Deadly, persistent, increasing threat. But... In God's providence, an escapable threat. Then the disciples took him by night and let him down through the wall in a large basket. 
2 Corinthians 11, verse 33, which we read, adds that it was in the, a window in the wall. Now, the apostle doesn't remember this as a moment of cleverness. I thought it like that for much of my life, going back to those Cenefelts. Do you guys know what Cenefelt is? We'll have to... Um, another time. Um, in childhood Sunday school classes. Uh, I thought it was a moment of great cleverness. The Apostle, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 33. Um, well, that whole 30 to 33 or so there. Uh, remembers it as a moment of great weakness. He had to humble himself to say, it's okay to retreat. I've been given an opportunity in God's wisdom, in God's providence. I've been given wisdom from God. I've been given a calling. There are other people to preach this gospel to. He's exposed as being weak. But he also becomes for us an, an example of using wisdom in our weakness. It's kind of like, it's similar to, I should have say it that way, what this same apostle commands all of us by the Holy Spirit in Romans 12, verse 3. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith that God has given you. We are limited of opportunity. We are limited of ability. We are limited of grace. You know, you, it's not uh, wise and good to break your child's sleeping pattern, skip their nap, feed them sugar, and then uh, demand perfect obedience from them. There needs to be instruction and discipline uh, when the sin exposes itself, but there also ought to be adaptation. When the weakness comes out and you exercise the wisdom, the Apostle Paul did not say, I am immortal until my work is done and march to the palace of Aretas the king in front of the governor and his garrison and start proclaiming the gospel. Would God have saved him? Well, it's a hypothetical question that, that doesn't deserve an answer because the way God saved him was giving him the humility and wisdom not to do that. But it's similar to one of the temptations with which Satan tempted Jesus, isn't it? Cast yourself from this temple. Display that you are immortal until your work is done. There's a temptation to thinking that pride or invincibility or uh, laboring beyond the constraints or good counsel of what God, how God has designed us and how God has saved us and how God has graced us, to thinking that those things uh, are zealous or brave in the face of persecution. No, it's okay. It's okay to, to admit that you don't have all the knowledge yet and take that time for study. He took the time in Arabia. It's okay to admit weakness and retreat to preach another day and be let down through the window in the wall. It's okay to accept the help of Barnabas, the son of encouragement. When you get to 
Jerusalem and all the Jews are afraid of you. And rather than running around announcing to them how Jesus appeared to you, so you better listen to me. Letting the man who already has the rapport with the congregation in Jerusalem bring you to the apostles. Apparently, it's Peter and James specifically to whom Barnabas brings them, and that's just harmonizing properly with Galatians 1, 18 to 20. And then at the end of our passage, it's okay when the brethren find out that Paul's home church, uh, the Hellenists in um, the synagogue, uh, or maybe uh, not in the synagogue, but the the Greek culture uh, Jews in Jerusalem, they think about him about the same way they thought about Stephen, and they're ready to do to him uh, what they did to Stephen while he was holding their coats. And he retreats again. Sometimes persecution is an escapable threat. You need to be willing to love not your life even unto death and to overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of his testimony. Right? Revelation 12. You you need to be willing for that. But you also need to be willing to be humble and exercise wisdom and take what providence gives you for your calling. Some of you are husbands and fathers. Some of us have health challenges as husbands and fathers. It's not super spiritual to ignore our health or Christian liberty. It's not super spiritual to ignore our health uh, so that we can uh, so that we can do a ton more spiritual things. It's not Christian liberty to ignore our health and entertain ourselves to death while we let being a good husband and a good father slip. It's just one example. In the case of the persecution, it was an escapable threat, and it was a recurring threat. It did happen again to him, and this time, instead of it taking uh, three years um, like it had in Damascus, it took 15 days in Jerusalem. So what are the marks of this apostolic ministry when Jesus begins to use the last of the apostles? Zeal, boldness, patience, skill, perseverance, and persecution. If we can agree on that biblical definition then we can agree to say, oh, that we had an apostolic ministry still today. Not meaning the speaking in tongues and the raising of paralytics, but men used by Jesus to proclaim that Jesus is the Son of God who became the Christ, who lived and died for sinners, and rose again, and that it is he, by his spirit, who is sending these preachers all over the world to proclaim who he is and what he has done. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that you would bring the gladness of 
obedience to the gospel, faith in you, that you would bring that gladness to the nations, that they would all go from being persecutors to praisers and proclaimers of your name, just as you did to Saul, just as you used Saul to do to many, so that you, we pray that you would raise up many men in whom you do similar works by your same almighty power, according to your same grace and your same spirit to preach the same gospel. O Lord, we pray for our preacher, our elders, the husbands in their marriages, the moms and dads in their parenting, and for all of us as brothers and sisters and neighbors, that you would give us zeal and boldness and patience and skill and perseverance even in the face of persecution and give us wisdom in knowing how to navigate it all and glorify yourself by the work that you do now in our place and in our time, we ask, Lord Jesus, in your own glorious name. Amen.